0: are excused to kids' church in the library. The scripture is an odd and wondrous thing this story and Numbers being one of the peak among them on sort of how does this all work and fit together. Um, it's just totally wild. It's one of the only few portions of Numbers that people really know, I think. This then the story of the spies, uh, Aaron's blessing. Um, those are the bronze snake we kind of know from the New Testament reference. But this is one of the few people, stories that people really know. But it's also through that fact, one of the few stories that people don't know at all. Um, There's a phrase we use sometimes here that I learned from a a biblical studies professor that was that familiarity doesn't what breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds infamiliarity, and infamiliarity breeds contempt. It's the idea that, like, I know that story. It's the story about the guy and his donkey. Um, You don't know the story of Balaam if you know the story of him and his donkey. We do this with Jonah all the time. Well, that's the guy who's getting eaten by the fish. Like, that—that that is not really the point or really much of the story at all. It's much grander and vaster than that. And so what happens with these stories that we think we know— oh, I know that story—we actually don't know them at all. We just know these, these portions, these, these cute little snippets that sort of guide us along. Oh, it's the donkey that talks to the guy. Um, yeah, but that's not really much of the story at all. And what's going on in the story is much deeper and wider than that. And so, this Sunday is our uh, second to last Sunday in the book of Numbers. Now, I am sad. Um, uh, I know Leviticus went on way too long last summer. For those of you who were here, we, we, the first four summers I've been here, we've done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. This year, we have Numbers. And next year we have Deuteronomy, but but more than any of the other books, I think I really fell in love with the content and the shape of Numbers. I think I learned a ton of Leviticus. It um, was dear to my heart in a way that it wasn't for many of you. Um, but I think Numbers has been even closer in the sense of the soul work that it asks us to do can bring us into a different place. And so one of the things we've looked at is we've talked about this... This soul work is you have this exodus generation, these people who were called out of Egypt. And, and some of that story is actually recounted in Balaam's promises. It's that God has brought these people out of Egypt. God has been strong and brought these people out. And you have these people who have left slavery. And what happens in the rebellion in the wilderness where the people say that we don't want to go into the land. It's too scary. As God says, all your bodies will fall into the sand here. And so this starts a new generation, that second line on the bottom, that this promised land generation, this generation that's going to go into God's land, this generation that will be entirely renewed except for um, Joshua and Caleb. Other than that, everyone else will fall into the sand and die. And what we have in the middle is, is in that box is this time in the wilderness, this time of trial and testing of going with the Lord, of seeking the Lord's provision, of, of and the, the, the phrase you'll see in some Bibles is it's the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin. And what we've been looking at as we've looked at it this way, for, the, for it gives a good shape of the whole story, but what we've also been looking at as we've looked at it this way is what does it mean as our own lives as Christians are caught in wilderness time as well? We are people who are born into a fallen creation, a people born into a world at odds with God, and through meeting Jesus, through being baptized, through coming into God's new life he's called us into in church, we join a people of the second timeline, this promised land generation. And yet the struggle is, is that we still have that old baggage with us. The kingdom has not yet been entirely fulfilled, and we still have these, um, this old self which is dead, but we still go back to we still find our ways there. And so what does it mean for us to be a people who are called out to be this new generation that comes to us in the final fulfillment of all things in Jesus Christ that we await, but is not yet fully here? The classic theological language for this um, is actually very simple. It's, and you've maybe heard that there's this already and not yet to the world. There's this already in which death has been defeated, and that God has done this mighty work. And then, yet there is this not yet that death has not yet been defeated for all of us, that we still will meet the grave, and that God someday will come and return and conquer all that stands against Him. That's sort of where we walk in this story. But it makes this story super interesting because what happens here? Now, this is I should say they've spent about 40 years since they left Egypt, 38ish years. They'll spend in this time of trusting and dying, which means they're surrounded by death very often. And what happens in Numbers 32 is all the people disappear. It's all pagans that talk and go along. It's not the people of Israel. It's not Moses. It's not Aaron. It's not Miriam. It's all this whole other scene, someplace else towards the end of the journey. And one of the things that I think should should tell us about our own journey of holiness as we look at this Bible and look at the story of Numbers is all the threats the Israelites have faced, wandered in the, earth, the wilderness for 38 years, have been threats of their own making so far. There's no stories of them dying because they starved to death, no stories of them dying because they didn't have water, no stories of them being wiped out by a, a band, a rove of traveling. Um, Uh, Crusaders or anything that goes through the land and kills some of them. Now, it might be that some of them did die that way, but at least from what we see is almost all the problems they have come from within their walls. I'm not a psychologist, but I do hang out with psychologists. There's this idea that most psychologists have with their clients when they come, is that most of your problems are within your realm of of, you can be able to fix. The circumstances of your life are what they are, but there's some sort of personal responsibility that you've created more than you think you have. So as the numbers generation goes through the wilderness, what they found is most of the things they've confronted so far, most of the death they've seen, most of the challenges they've seen, have been of their own accord. Now here's the interesting part is now we finally get to somebody else. We finally get to a threat from the outside. The final rebellion and the final death of the Exodus generation happens in chapter 25, which we won't get to today. But there's um, the there's sense in which they've sort of reached near the end of their journey, and they're camping next to Moab is what happens. And, and um, Balak sees this, right? Um, and this is where somebody begins to see them as a threat. Now if you're familiar with the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament at all, the people of God are almost more like food for the taking than they are like a threat to anyone. So it's a very interesting story that, that Belek looks out and he sees all of them and he sees them as a threat. And what he says is that they'll be like a wild ox who eats all of us. Which is, if you were listening to what David read and what Ray read, the wild ox shows up again and again. And this is one of the the Dark humor parts of the book of Numbers, I guess, is that if you say something like, we wish we had meat, and God hears that and gives you so much meat, you gorge yourself on it for days and you're unable to stop, and it leads to death because of that. Like, God's most of the punishments that God has used throughout the book of Numbers are ones the people have come up with themselves. Oh, if we go into that land, that land will eat us. It's right in that same scene that the land does swallow up some people. God seems to have this way of sort of following through on what you say, which is quite, quite uh, terrifying in some ways um, that this would happen. But that's exactly what happens here. Is he says, surely these people will just mow us down and eat us like an eats grass. The threats that come in the blessings that, that Bala gives to them uh, go back to that image. Like there's this, there's this way in which God brings these things back around and so the king sees the people on the side of the land, and what he does is he calls for a sorcerer, a divinator, a cedar, depending on what you want to call Balaam. And it's a, it's a weird thing when we think about it, is that their worldview is much more encapsulated in powers and rival things and this, that, and the other. And so we see this um, primitively in the David and Goliath story, if you're familiar with it, is, is in some sense David represents the god of the Israelites when he goes to battle. Goliath represents the god of the Philistines when they go to battle, they fight, the two of them, and whoever wins is the winner of the whole battle, saves a lot of lives. I, I sometimes joke, which I think it's funny, it's like a primitive version of the United Nations. Like, okay, just a little violence and then everybody else can live. Um, it, 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 uh, and so that's what happens in these things is they have this idea that there are these other gods. Now, we in 21st century North America generally think, and properly so, if I'm a Christian, I believe in Yahweh and I believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and no other gods exist. That would be a foreign worldview in this time. This is why Yahweh oftentimes, the Lord, his personal name is called Elohim, which is the God of gods in some ways. There's actually an argument among Old Testament scholars that in the Torah, in the first five books, are they actually learning um, radical monotheism? There is only one God and no other gods exist. Or are they learning monotheism in the sense there is only one God we worship who called us out, and all the other gods are either mini-angels, demons, or very, very weak gods. Our God is the God of gods. Um, and that's sort of an argument that goes on. And so what happens is the, the, the king sees these people camp next to them, and he calls for it this year to sort of negotiate with their god to negotiate with, with his God to sort of say, let's smite these people. Let's do battle with these people before we do battle with these people. Let's see if we can rewrite things. Now he says that they're very numerous. There's so many of them. Which draws us back to Abraham's promises that God promises to make them a great nation. And what what the king sees is that this is a great nation. And it's not hard in their imagination to say, if you got a lot of people and you've got a lot of people in a place that maybe there shouldn't be people, somehow that God is protecting them. This is how they work up things in the world, that that God, and so he wants to call somebody forth to sort of negotiate and deal with that God. Now this may seem, first, the Bible has a bunch of stories of neurotic kings, and it's always scary, from Herod backwards to Pharaoh, Um, to kings in the middle. When a king is worried, it turns out poorly for almost everyone. When a king's sort of um, anger or envy or anything gets riled up, it's a bad thing. And we think about this, so he calls together this person who's going to curse them. And we're um, modern people, so we go, ooh. Uh, It doesn't sound that scary. It's like, Oh, how's that going to work? But if you if you want to think about this in, in, in conceptual lens that I think makes sense to us is that this is worse than what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh said we're going to throw all the firstborn, or we're going to throw all the boys that are born now into the Nile, and we think genocide, um, infanticide, it's horrible, um, and it is horrible. Um, and you're what I'm arguing is that what uh, the king here, Baelic, is seeking is worse than that. And the reason I'm gonna say it's worse than that is that in this unconventional form of warfare, it's almost like a nuclear holocaust. It wants to wipe out all of their future. It wants to wipe out their promise and their life going forward. It's not looking at just boys. It's looking at taking away everything that's been promised and given to these people. This is a a heightened form of warfare in this world, to say, let's let's get them cursed this way, so that they'll have no future, they'll have no life, but they may never move forward again. What he's calling forth is a a form of warfare and and fighting that is foreign to us, but is vast in many ways. And so he's called forward to sort of bless or to curse. and this is ba- Balaam's struggle is that he's called to come and bless, or is called to come and curse Israel. And he knows something about it. There's a very weird um, first, this is a battle in the New Testament. This would be called principalities and powers. This is a battle between principalities and powers. The New Testament has this great phrase in the book of Ephesians that says your battle is not with flesh and blood, but your battle is with principalities and powers. That there is something else going on in the world than what you just see in other people. And this story is a great story that says, what is the battle that's going on? It's going on between principalities and powers. And in this story, who is the warrior? Not Israel, not Moses, not Joshua, but the Lord himself doing his own work in the world. Um, That's what sort of comes here. Well, what's weird about this story, that I think is incredibly strange, and I noticed it before I read commentaries, and then when I read commentaries, it still was incredibly strange to me, was that Balaam says the name of the Lord which in our Bibles, L-O-R-D, is in Hebrew, uh, Yod, uh, Hampton would know, you can ask him afterwards. Uh, Yod, it's it's Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is the way that we pronounce it in English, but but that's the word that is there. He knows the personal name of the Lord. He says the Lord right after the bat. And it's very strange, you can interpret this many different ways. Now the rabbis all hate Balaam. He's like universally, Balaam is just evil, greedy, all bad, and part of the reason for that is he seems to be the one who sends the Moabite woman into the camp later in numbers, and sort of leads to this last rebellion that leads to death. Um, there's a positive reference to Balaam in the book of Micah, um, and, and the name comes up several times. Almost always negative, but but rabbinic interpretation is negative, negative, negative. But it raises the question of how does Balaam know the name of the Lord? And not only that, if you're familiar with some of the stubborn prophets, Jonah and others, he almost does a better job at being a prophet. He listens to God, he he goes to God, he doesn't really fumble along the way. He, he sort of gives guidance to what God has done, this pagan person on the outside. Um, and so it's very, very weird that he knows the name of the Lord. And the way that I sort of finally have come around to sort of at least understanding this a little bit is that if your job is a seer, is a, a divinitor, uh, somebody who can bless and a curse in this world, you probably know the powers that range in the world. Um, this people has this people, this people has this people, this people has this people. And being the middleman that you are, working with those gods, you know many of them, but you may not have honor or respect for many of them, but that's the way you do business. Does that make sense? Is that somehow he's, he's become familiar with the other gods in the world. What I should say, one last thing about Baal is they have actually found in the 1970s, like a temple-ish thing to pay for. Though so he was, uh, well, if he's the Balaam written about in the story, he's, he's kind of a big deal. Um, and he's kind of, you know, got, got reputation and stuff like that. So if you were reading the story, we, um, the guy rides a wild donkey. Um, I think sometimes we view him as sort of a bumbling sort of mess, especially in the donkey scene. But he has some power and is sought after in the world, so much so that they build temples to this this guy, allegedly, and then that, and that's something that happens, and so Balaam has this way of knowing that this name of God, he has the name of God, and what happens is the people who come to him offer these gifts, and he says he can't do anything without the Lord, he can't really curse or bless without the Lord doing this, and so he goes and meets with the Lord, and the Lord says to him, you know, you cannot curse these people, they've been blessed, you can't curse these people. So he tells the men to go home. The men go home and they say to the king, uh, He just didn't want to do it, which is funny. They don't say, He went and met with God, their God, um, and that God told them they can't go. They just say, uh, He didn't want to do it. The king, and as kings do, gets a little heated and sends more stuff and a higher delegation back to meet with him. And Balaam tells them, You know, I can't go, but I'll meet with God again and see what he says. And God says, um, you should listen to me, but you shouldn't, and you can go, um, which is a weird sort of answer because of what happens a little bit later. And so he gets up to go with these men, he says, I'll go with you this time. Um, and what happens right after that is then it says as he's going that the Lord was angry with him. Then God just tell him he can go. Um, the Lord is angry with him right after that. Now. There's this way in the book of Numbers that, like, when Moses meets with God and debates with God, that he like changes his mind on things, or at least the way the story is written, he's changes his mind. Now, in classical theism, what most Christians adopt to, is God doesn't change his mind. We have different ways of explaining that. Um, human revelation is meaning of God, and that God's mind isn't changed, but we're realizing how God's mind is. Um, it's a, a separation of economies. It's, there's there's different ways of looking at how God changes his mind. But what's most interesting about this to me, and I wanted to do a whole sermon on classical theism, but I didn't, so you're welcome, Um, uh, was is that Balaam, in one of his oracles, the one that Ray read for us, says that this God does not lie, and this God does not change his mind. So whatever seems to go on between God telling him to go and God being angry at him going, Balaam confesses later that this God doesn't change his mind. Totally strange, at least to me. And I don't have great exclamations for this, but, but it's an interesting way of thinking about this. The one thing that the angel says to him as, as he's going um, is he can't... I'm trying to think where... Um, he can't see is part of his problem. But um, The one thing that the angel says to him and we'll talk about the angel and the donkey we'll go forward, backward, Um, is that your way is perverse. Uh, That's one way you can translate the Hebrew there. And so it could be that Balaam had permission to go, but as he goes, he's thinking about treasure, he's thinking about all the gifts he will get. He's not going as an emissary of this guy, he's going as a way to make himself rich or something. You can read all sorts of things into Balaam's logic. The scripture doesn't tell us, but that's what the angel says, um, that your way is perverse, and that's why he's being blocked. And, And Balaam himself confesses something here, too. And so whatever went on there, you know, Balaam, when the angel stops and he, says, he falls down, and he says, I confess that I've done wrong. And so read between the lines what you want, but, but there are lots of options. But there's something more going on in the story that makes it equally strange. So Balaam goes on his donkey. This is us going back. And his donkey stops, and he sees this, this angel in the road. Now, do people remember these? I could never see anything. Yes, the magic eyes. Um, did, did these work for anyone or no? Sometimes. Wow, I'm just going to switch because they never worked for me. Um, and I don't know what this one is of. So um, there's a problem for Balaam. The donkey can see the magic eye. Uh, the donkey can see this is how our vision actually works. Um, we see things upside down. Um, but um, Balaam can't see. Now, one of the things Balaam is called is the seer. His donkey can see the angel standing right in front of him about to kill him. And yet the seer, the one with temples built to him, the one with power, the one sought out in the world, cannot see what's right in front of him. It's an interesting draw here, is that the one who's supposed to be leading this mission goes out in front, and he's the one who's supposed to be able to see the challenges and to see what this God is doing, to be able to to give a word, and yet the lesson right off the bat is a donkey can see, but you can't. That you can't make your way out of this world, that you can't make it to this place. And so what happens is is the donkey becomes the seer, which is interesting. And and what happens is, is Balaam beats him three times as the angel sort of impedes their way, and Balaam um, becomes the donkey three times to Balaam in their their wishing, is that that Balaam sort of actually becomes the donkey to Balaam. It's It's a story in contrast, right? So the donkey is doing something that Balaam doesn't want to do. What does Balaam keep doing that Balaam doesn't want him to do? Blessing the people of Israel. He becomes as effective as a donkey is in this moment. And, 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 uh, sort of sends him off, uh, and he offers one more blessing. But There are three blessings in their, in their main exchange. And so this is sort of what, what happens here is they meet together. And so he, he has this moment with the donkey that is a better seer than he is. And he can't see in this moment in these trials. And what he does, is he finds that the strong are weak and that blessings are cursings in the story. And so he moves forward and he finally gets to the king and the king sort of complains to him. It's clear that that, that Balaam doesn't have the power and the upper hand in this relationship when he gets there. The king sort of bullies him around. But the first thing they do is they bring seven um, seven bulls and rams together and they sort of begin their negotiations with the god. They burn these seven they offer them as a sacrifice of this God, and then Balaam has his chance to sort of shine. And so he goes off, he comes back, and he tells him this first oracle. And the first oracle is kind of, um, the way to put it is it's kind of like history. There's not a lot in it that's actually a full blessing, but it's the story of who these people are and how they're related to this God. God has called them out. God has resided with them here. God is with them. And so he does this first blessing here right at the moment. He says, I cannot denounce them. Who can denounce them for they curse? And he says this weird thing, which connects division, is who can count the dust of Jacob or even number a fourth of Israel? If you remember Abraham's blessing, there's two actually. One for today is that, that if the people who bless you will be blessed and the people who curse you will be cursed. That's sort of one of the true things that that happens here, but also that his descendants would be like the stars and the sands and the sea and that people wouldn't count them. So you see Abraham's blessing becoming fulfilled here again, is that the people exist in the world that God has promised them. And God also promised them a land, and that's where they're heading. Um, they're going to the promised land as the number of people that God had promised them they would become. What was interesting about this after this first blessing is that Balaam says, you must be struggling with seeing them. Uh, Maybe they are too much when you look out there. They were too much for me when I looked out there. So let's move to another place where we don't see all of them. (laughs) Um, The neurotic nature of kings when they get into these situations is quite hysterical. So, oh, there's so many of them. Well, let's move to a place where you see less of them is his solution. And so he takes them away another time. And he gets his next blessing. This is the one that says, God is not a human being. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He does not speak and then not act. He does not promise and not fulfill. I have received the command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. Then he finds himself caught in this blessing. And he says that this is what God has done. The people will rise like a lioness. They will rouse themselves like a lion. They will not, they, That does not rest until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. Balak wisely responds to this, neither curse them or bless them at all then. Um, which seems like a good moment. I mean, Because what you find is, is Balak believes this stuff works, which is why he contacted Balaam in the first place. So if these are the messages you're getting back, maybe it's time to cut the cord. Maybe this is not the way we should go about this today. And he says, Balaam responds, did not, I, did not I tell you that I could only say what the Lord says to me? he says, come, let me take you to another place, and, which he does do. And they try again. And he takes them over to a wasteland where they're not even near them. And he says, build me seven altars and prepare seven bulls and rams and they sacrifice again. Now Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He did not resort to divinity as at other times, but he turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel in camp, tribe by tribe, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he spoke this message. He talks about how they're camped by the rivers and their places, but like valleys, they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the water, like cedars beside water. Water will flow from their buckets and seed will have abundant water. The king will be greater than Agath. The kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox, which is his concern. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like Ananias, who dares rise them? May those who bless you be cursed, and may those may those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Balaam's, Balak's anger rises against Balaam here. And he says, I summon you to curse, but you have blessed them three times. They'll leave at once and go home. I said I will reward you, handsome, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam keeps his treasures, thinking they're there. And then he tells them that this is what I told you all along, and he speaks this final message that proclaims this future people, that this people is going to have a future greater than what he can see, and that they're going to conquer these nations that surround this land. Everything that Balaam hoped for is not going to happen. The Lord has sort of confounded this this desire to curse and turned it all into blessings. I think that's the challenge of this text in some ways, is, is the ways in which curses are turned to blessing by God. Because is is God is with these people, and in a way that they are unaware of God is battling for these people, God is providing with these people in a way that they don't even see. And yet God has turned what's meant to be a curse into a blessing. As I thought about that over the week, what does it mean that God takes curses and turns them into blessings? I thought of that line from the book of Genesis, that what you intended for harm, God intends for good. This is this message that Joseph has after he's sold into slavery. He's lived there for many years, and then his brothers come back and he saves them. And Joseph has the ability to say, what you intended for harm, and Joseph did not have a good or easy life, I don't want to recount it all, but He spends a long time just in a jail cell where a guy forgot to tell him that he answers this guy's prayer and he never gets out. In the evil that's been done to him over and over again, even at that moment of reconciliation, he's able to say, what you have intended for evil, God intends for good. And it's this message that that carries into the New Testament. Carries into who Jesus is. Now, Jesus and David are prophesied in this last vision. It says... um, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not be near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. The God is going to raise up this new king, this new thing coming off. And this star that he's talking about is one that Christians often read into um, the star that appears at Jesus' birth. That this, that this God has brought this star, this, this person out. But what happens is that in the law is that cursed is the person hung on a tree, is what it says. And what happens with Jesus is Jesus becomes this person in the Hebrew imagination who is cursed because he is hung on a tree. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, so that many might be saved, is how Joseph finished his sentence. What we intend for evil, in our sinfulness, when we crucify God, God intends for good. It's this way in which we can't thwart the purposes of God. You get Balaam the seer to come help you, and it doesn't work out. And there's these ways in the New Testament that this comes to, to pass too. Is that somebody says, uh, I can't remember his name now, that uh, that it's better that one man die than a whole nation, which is exactly what God goes about doing. My favorite is Pilate hangs a sign on Jesus that says, King of the Jews, which he means in a mocking way, but of course he is the King of the Jews. But there's these passages in the New Testament that point out that when, when people think they're doing bad, even their language betrays them, and they're actually doing what God has taught, made them do. That God is making a way in this place. And so Jesus comes for us, the one who's cursed on the tree, the one who takes on the curses of the Divinitors and seers and the powerful, his own neurotic kings in his time, and becomes the one who overcomes and brings out a new life. I have two final points, but I'm trying to cut them down to one, but I'll probably just combine them and make it longer. So hang on. <laughs> There's a, this is not a point, but I just thought this was worth pondering, and you can ponder on your own, is is, this is an artist who who did Balaam next to the Apostle Paul there's something about that connection there uh, Paul is also knocked from his horse um, is silenced and then goes into and and there's a there's something about the way in which Paul is thinking he's doing God's work and doing something and Balaam is is thinking the same thing Uh We'll just do a quick vote. Uh, catechism or poem? Poem. Poem, oh, okay. Poem on the back of the bulletin. We'll skip the catechism for today. The catechism has a question about what does it mean to trust the providence of God? Uh, and we can share the answer afterwards. The poem on the back of the bulletin is, I think, captures what we see in blessing and curse very well. This is from George Herbert. Uh, Philosophers have measured mountains, fathomed the depths of seas of states and kings, Walk with a staff to heaven and trace fountains. But there are two vast spacious things to which measure it doth more behoove. Yet there are them and they sound their sin and love. So the next part of the poem talks about sin. Who would know sin let him repair unto the Mount of Olives? There shall he see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is pressed and vice which forth pain to hunt this cruel food through every vein. If the philosophers want to ponder sin, they should go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is crucified and to look at the pain and the anguish there. But if they want to know love, who knows not love, let him assay, and taste the juice which on the cross a pike, did set again a brooch, and let him say, if he ever did taste the like, love that is sweet as liquor and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. You want to know love, too, he says, you go to Calvary, you go to the cross. And what's being crushed and constricted there as a curse is then being constructed and constricted there as if it were wine for the people seeking life and love. It's curse and blessing combined that we see in the cross and that Herbert Nailing to for us in this poem. Love is that sweet is that liquor sweet and most divine, which feels, which my God feels as blood, and for our benefit, and for our salvation, but I, as wine. Let us pray. God, you have called us into the odd and wondrous story of Balaam, his donkey, Balaam. What's been going on in the wilderness we've walked through for many days, but What we see here now is the battle behind the scenes. The true God.